When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kalamorkas. After a weekend off, Formula One's most unusual season continues this week with the returning Turkish Grand Prix at Istanbul, which is coming back to the F1 calendar for the first time since 2011. The 3.316 mile track is famous for being one of the more popular tilkadromes, helped of course by the multi-apex Turn 8 in the second sector, which produced an exciting challenge for the drivers during the track's initial seven-year stay in the championship. But the cars are much different these days, which may mean a different spectacle at Istanbul. They have much higher downforce levels than back in 2011, and that year, the first season of running Pirelli tyres, the Turkish GP was a four-stop pit-stop fest, which also featured 79 overtakes, which is up from 27 a year previously, as the then-new DRS combined with the fragile rubber to really ignite a new debate over F1's entertainment factor, had it become too artificial, which still continues to this day. Joining me today to discuss all of that and much more on Zoom are Motorsport.com's F1 editor Jonathan Noble and Autosport's F1 reporter Luke Smith. Um, how are you both? It's uh, rather a miserable morning in northeast London for me, looking at the weather outside my window. Uh, but at least, Luke, we are now starting the second week of our post-Imola travel quarantine period. So, uh, yeah, how have you found being cooped up indoors? Um, not actually too bad. I think the fact that the whole UK is in lockdown has actually made it a bit, obviously it's a terrible situation, but it's kind of made me feel a bit less like I'm missing out on like going out to pubs with mates or anything like that. It's just, just is what it is really. So, uh, so yeah, been uh, making the most of it. It's not actually too bad uh, down in West London. Now, now I've moved across the city. Um, it's uh, yeah, quite a nice day. So uh, yeah, it just is what it is. Like ultimately we can't do anything about it. It is the quarantine. We're getting through it and uh, hopefully we'll have some good racing this weekend to get stuck into before finally getting some freedom next week. I look forward to it. 
Indeed, Luke revealing there how, how he's gone up in the world of late by moving to West London. But anyway, John, how are you doing? Are you looking forward to this weekend's Turkish Grand Prix? Uh, I am due. I am due. That's not very good English. Uh, I am actually. Um, Turk is what? Yeah, is one of the Tilka Tilka tracks that was a success. Was good, but traveling there and going to the race is always a bit of, bit of mixed feelings because you've got this great great layout that the turn eight spectacular, good corners, good elevation. But the tracks in the middle of nowhere always was a nightmare to um, travel to or drive to. The options were staying in Istanbul, but the bridge over the Bosphorus was invariably um, jammed with traffic all the time. Uh, and I remember one year, um, our designated driver for the weekend, whose name shall be redacted, um, oh. basically just adopted the policy of whenever a, a police convoy went past in the hard shoulder on the on the log jammed motorway, uh, he would just basically just duck in behind it. Um, follow them all the way through, go through the toll booths with all the alarms blaring off. Um, and we were expecting a massive um, letter from the Kaha company at the end of the week uh, with all these numerous uh, tolls not having been paid, but never heard anything. So great success. Oh, Luke, maybe maybe that's what we should have done when we were stuck in that traffic uh, trying to get into Portimao. <laughs> that would have worked a treat. There we go. Anyway, sorry to to bring up terrible memories. Um, oh, John, am I, am I misremembering? I thought Istanbul was one of your, your, your better places to go from, uh, from, from a conversation we'd had during our, uh, our epic and very enjoyable trip between Spa and Magello. I, th- I thought you enjoyed visiting that city or is it just the, the, the sightseeing, the, you know, the, the location is great, but just the, the track access is terrible. In the, in the end, we, did, we stayed in a, um, we abandoned staying in Istanbul. It got too much, the traffic, you, you could get stuck if the name redacted driver wasn't in charge of the car and busting the toll booths, then um, it would take you an hour and a half to get into Istanbul. And you'd be stuck for an hour and a half um, going back out. It would be impossible to have time to go for dinner anywhere because taxis were just stuck. So we found a, a town near the circuit, which basically flew into Istanbul airport, jumped on a bus to a ferry port and got a boat across the um, uh, river to the other side and picked up a hire car there. Um so it was all, I mean, it was fine. It wasn't, wasn't a, a complete disaster, but it would be amazing to have this track um, near a bustling city that was easy to get in and out of. It certainly would. It certainly would. But I don't think getting in and out is going to be uh, much of a problem this weekend because there are no fans uh, in attendance. Turkey had initially wanted or expected up to 100,000 people to attend, which during a pandemic might not have been the most sensible thing to happen but yeah Luke is the what what is that what is the latest on the sort of the situation surrounding the Grand Prix and, and how events are uh, are going ahead getting everything set up uh well yeah as you say no, no fans are going to be there obviously it was a an aim of Turkey and I think they quite ambitiously said that 100,000 target and F1 quite quick to say that's Turkey's target that's not our target and I think they were maybe expecting some fan levels around sort of the Portimao kind of number which I think was about sort of that again was planned to be about forty to 50,000 a day and got cut in half. And even with that cut in half to bring about all the travel hectic uh, chaos that you did mention. And it's, uh, yeah, so, but they did announce a few weeks back there would be no fans going to the Turkish Grand Prix, which is a shame. I think a lot of fans were sort of targeting, targeting it as a uh, as an event to get to. Obviously, a lot of new fans to the sport as well, thinking maybe about a lot of the Max Verstappen fans, for example. I think they were quite excited by the idea to get to a Grand Prix this year, to go and see a new city in Istanbul, to get to a new track. But obviously, that's all been kiboshed as sort of the pandemic is appearing to be on this sort of second wave across Europe and uh, into Eurasia as well. So, uh, yep, yeah, so that's the state of play, really. But hopefully, it'll be a, a very sort of safe and, and trouble-free weekend and that everyone can get in and out of Turkey all, all quite smoothly and we can just carry on with the season and uh, get this round completed. 
Absolutely. And of course, uh, we echo that sentiment, hoping it all goes uh, goes off without a hitch this weekend. Um, Luke, what are your memories of watching the, uh, the the seven races that did take place at Istanbul when it was on the F1 calendar full time? Did you Was it a race you particularly looked forward to watching? Yeah, it was actually, because I, I mean, that joined the calendar in what, 2005 and I first started watching F1 in 2006 and I was like, my mum was a big Ferrari fan, so I was into Ferrari as well. And obviously Felipe Massa was absolutely brilliant around Turkey. Like he, I think he got three wins there, I rightly recall, and he was he was a real force. So I think I always quite look forward to it sort of from that sort of fan perspective. But it was just a really cool track, as John said. And I think that one of the, one of my favourite F1 onboards, if it's not too geeky to have such a thing, is of... Uh, it is a little bit. It is a oh, little bit, okay. but we'll, we'll let you off. That's Sorry. fine. That's fine. What's, what's number seven on your list, Luke? <laughs> touché, touché. <laughs> uh, it is, uh, but uh, Kimi Raikkonen's poll, and I shared it on Twitter this morning, Kimi Raikkonen's poll app uh, from Turkey in 2005, because that was, I think, the first real look at the circuit. And you've got Kimi in, I think, the peak of his career. That McLaren in 2005 was brilliant, if a little under, unreliable. Uh, V10 engine, and it's just it's just a really like really cool lap. So I, I really like the circuit. Um, I played it a lot in the video game. It was always quite challenging, and uh, yeah, I, I I just think it's really cool. Like, and it's the kind of track that I thought similar to Imola that I would never get to go to or work out or see F1 at during my career because it's sort of a thing of F1's past. And obviously disappointed not to be going this weekend. But it is, uh, it's just really cool to have another sort of classic track on the calendar. And as John said, sort of one of the better Tilkadromes for everyone to get stuck into. Uh, just to, just to come back to your favourite onboards uh, there, Luke. I think to be honest, mine, my, my one of my favourites, probably the favourite, is uh, Kimi Raikkonen's onboard when he tries to gets called into the uh, to the pit to, <clears throat> when he gets called in for a pit stop at the British Grand Prix early this year and has a very sweary rant at his uh, his engineer. There you go, um, John. Just coming back to uh, the 2011 race that I uh, referenced in my intro there because I'm, I, I I thought well, my column for Autosport Magazine and Autosport.com Plus this week is going to be about Turkey, funnily enough. Uh, and perhaps what can the what can the current field learn from the last few visits? What type of racing the track tended to produce? And it was really interesting reading up uh, Autosport magazines. Uh, first of all, that the leader that you know gives a flavour of what to expect from the issue, and and perhaps comment on events in motorsport of the week that we, that we tend to cover, uh, and and the report from that race because it was one of a bit. It was the tone was a bit of annoyance, really. It was like, well, hang on a minute, what what just happened there? As I said, seventy nine overtakes. Uh, four pit stops for everybody because that obviously that was the first year of the Pirelli rubber and I think you know that that sort of era I, I particularly remember China which had come just previous to, to this race being the first oh wow these tyres are just going to cause overtaking left right and centre but it seemed from picking up the magazine's uh, sort of narrative well first of all their problem was that so much happened as a result of all the pit stops and all the overtakes was that there was no really narr- there was no real narrative to follow it was just right everyone does their thing, then they stop, then they do it again. It's sort of, you know, rinse and repeat, as it were. But also DRS had really seemed to become a, a big factor at, at this race. It was the first time or, or one of the first times that everyone had had a chance to think, oh, hang on a minute, maybe it's a little bit too powerful. Maybe it is a bit too artificial. Does that does that tally with, with what you remember going back nine years? Yeah, I think it was that era where F1 was trying to trying to find its feet and trying to understand what, what an ideal tyre would be or should be. Because um, we'd had that, Great start. Um, uh, when when Pirelli came in, there was, you know, it was a different era of racing, a different approach to the tyres. They wanted wanted them to be high degradation. And on the outside, from a fan's perspective, thought this is great. We'll have lots of car variability of speeds that will produce overtaking. It will play to the drivers who can look after their tyres more. So if you're too aggressive, you'll burn through them and it should make a great spectacle. But I think what Turkey illustrated was when it goes too far, that... 
um, you know, four four stops where everyone's having to do far far more stops than they would like to like to do. Where you're right, there is no narrative to the race. It's just charge, change tires, charge, change tires. You don't get a story to that race and that beautiful aspect of a Grand Prix where it all comes to a crescendo at the end and you, you get a spectacular finish because it's all chaos all the way through. So it's a bit. I think it's a bit of an eye opener, especially because it was a track that was good for driving. It was a track where the cars looked spectacular. So in theory, it should have produced a great Grand Prix, but it started. It was the first inklings of have F1 gone too far with high degrading tyres and do we need to kind of rein it back and achieve this balance between a good spectacle and not becoming too artificial and Luke do you think that 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 debate still rages to this day as I sort of suggested earlier because you know we could we could see similar topics come up this weekend okay yeah the tyres are different they are still high degradation but they degrade in a different way and it's not quite as bad as it was back in 2011 one of my uh, uh, one of our colleagues uh, who shall remain nameless as well described the tyres as like camembert uh, back in 2011, particularly around Turkey. Um, but also, you know, DRS is still a thing, although it is much harder for the cars to to get close and, and make uh, make passes now that they've got much more downforce. They're much bigger, different types of engines, just sort of different, massively different types of machinery. But yeah, what are you expecting in terms of the racing this weekend? I think that, I think it is correct that the sort of debate about entertainment versus a sort of a purist Grand Prix, that is something that is still talked about. And obviously I think F1 is very keen to strike the balance perfectly. And they've said they want to make it more of a spectacle. They want to make it more entertaining and serve the fans, but they also don't want to get too far away from the roots of the sport and what, what makes it great. So I think it's, it's a sort of a, a fine line that it's had to tread. And I think since the tyres have sort of become a little less, a little less like Camembert, more of a, uh, say a, a Stilton or or a cheddar or a bit of a harder cheese maybe that it's um we, we've kind of gone away from that so i think that hopefully we won't see any sort of repeat of, of those issues that we had in turkey uh, back in 2011 but i think I, i'm just really fascinated to see how the cars get on because it is a real it's just a real cool track like it's a as, as we've already said one of the better tilt Tilkadromes. You mentioned turn eight. I think seeing the cars through there is going to be really, really cool. But it also maybe points to how just how far F1 has come in that we've kind of asked all the drivers already, like, oh, what are you expecting? And all of them have gone, turn eight is going to be really cool, but you're literally going to do your installation lap, not flat out. And from then on, you should be flat out around there. And it's kind of a bit like, oh, it kind of sanitizes, I guess, some of the great corners and some of the great circuits just because of how far these cars have come. But I guess that sort of points just to where F1 has advanced really and just just what kind of sport it's become and that ultimately new tracks that join the calendar in the future, what they've got to do basically to remain a challenge for the drivers and be exciting again. So I guess it would just be, I think a bit like Imola, just interesting to see a track basically from a very different era of Formula One brought into the modern day and just see how it fares. Absolutely. Well, this track also rather famous for spats between teammates. This is the 10-year anniversary of the 2010 Turkish Grand Prix, where, of course, uh, Sebastian Vettel and Mark Webber very famously and very controversially in terms of that squad uh, clashed. Uh, Vettel pushed out of the race. Incidentally, have you guys seen the video that did the rounds on Twitter of what happened to Vettel after he got out of the car? Well, obviously, he's he's on the TV doing his, his gestures about what he thinks of Webber's driving. Uh, but then there's a fan video which someone someone shared recently, where Vettel comes back behind the the marshal's post, and there's uh, an official has turned up in not a course car but like an official's car to get him back to the pit lane. Vettel actually gets into it, into the driver's seat, 
and drives back. He literally floors it. The, the tires are squealing. It's an amazing video. I'd search it out if, if, if you can see it. Uh, but yeah, in, in, incidentally, also that uh, that race um, where Jensen Button and Lewis Hamilton had a very, very, very hard fight for what became the win of Hamilton prevailing. Some suggestions that Hamilton was quite surprised at how hard uh, uh, Button raced him there but then uh, uh, Button sort of I think diffused the situation by being like that was incredible that was brilliant and then it didn't blow up to be a bigger thing at McLaren but then a year later in that race that we've been talking about earlier they did exactly the same thing had a really hard fight ruined their tyres in that particular stint and made it a lot harder for themselves and in that race as well that 2011 race both the Renault drivers engaged in a great a uh, great bit of wheel banging through the slow final corners at, at the track I think uh, Nick Hyde felt particularly aggrieved at Vitaly Petrov's driving but what is, is it just a curious uh, a curious aberration of this track, John, that it just it, it has a reputation for teammates uh, not getting on in, in certain places? It's probably a manifestation of the tyre issue that you're having to balance the need to um, not be too aggressive and kill your tyres. So your pace is, you're kind of managing your pace to the limit of your car more than um, being able to push 100%. And then if your teammate is therefore elects to push a little bit harder... Um, with with a good potential to overtake him with a DRS, um, very powerful DRS, then it there's more of a trigger point than there would be at a track like Monaco, for example, where you can't overtake, or even Imola with very few chances beyond a safety car restart. So I think it's just like that. And it, it probably was um, an element of both those factors that were important in the the, the Weber v Vettel thing, and also that you know that that tension between Mark and Sebastian had been, had been bubbling up. Um, for a little while and it was the first reality of them fighting um, at the front for potentially a, a world championship title um, and at some point in a rivalry a clash normally has to happen basically it's very rare for tensions to to build up in a battle for wins or potentially championship to go that far without there without there being a flashpoint um, I think we've it's quite remarkable so far that Valtteri Bottas and Lewis Hamilton haven't really had that. There's been minor rumblings along the way, but nothing has yet blown up uh, to the extent we've seen it over teams. Yeah, I was, I was thinking exactly that as you were speaking, and it, it made me think even if you go back to 2014, Nico Rosberg, Lewis Hamilton, obviously they, they clashed two years later at Barcelona, but you know there was the incident at Spa where um, they tag each other and Hamilton ends up with a puncture and you, you, that already you know, the first flashpoints and it sort of gets worse from there but yeah what what are your particular memories of that 2010 race John because obviously what what was it like in the paddock after the Red Bull drivers had sort of taken each other out okay uh, Weber continued finished third but it's not it wasn't it's not going to be the first time that that happens in that team's history because of course uh, Daniel Ricciardo and Max Verstappen clash uh, eight years later at Baku obviously they both end up out of the race but how did how did Red Bull handle that from 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 your point if you what was it what, what what how did they react in in the media afterwards well normally normally in the media center um you know during the races there's cheering and whooping and some of it's a bit over exaggerated when cars are off and everyone you know makes a big ooh but uh when you get teammates colliding journalists love a good story that we like nothing more than a, a fantastic story there's nothing worse than a race where they set off in grid order and they go around there's no overtaking and there's no narratives there's no stories and it finishes so what we like uh Races like, you know, Turkey with Vettel and Seb colliding. We like Spain 2016 with Rosberg and Hamilton colliding and Max Verstappen winning. So these are the, the moments. So when they collided, obviously there was a big, whoa! Then what I remember is um, um, John McAvoy from the Daily Mail um, had uh, seen this incident happened and then just went straight down into the into the paddock uh, to try and doorstep Sebastian as he 
came back in. Um, and I think one of the Red Bull um, guys gave him very short shrift as he came in, all live on television as McAvoy's down there chasing his scoop. That is actually on the F1 2010 official review DVD as well. Because um, <laughs> I remember watching that when, when I was a fan and thinking, oh, OK, that's rather interesting. And then, yeah. So I remember that. And then post-race, um, what I seem to recall, obviously uh, quite a way now, is that you have the, the PR teams trying to manage the situation, um, trying to keep it all under control. But obviously, just as Mercedes had Nicky Lauda, who would throw some grenades into the into the um, the building to stir things up when he was speaking. Red Bull had Helmut Marco, So while Christian Horner was trying to stay quiet about everything, Helmut Marco was grabbed as he left the track and let rip about all this, the outrage of the situation and who was to blame. So then you've got a, a team PR trying to manage not only a clash between two drivers that they've not faced before, but they've also got the internal conflict of one of their um, team members had said something um, which ramped it up even more. So... It's one of those great evenings where everyone's tr- trying to grab opinions and grab um, quotes and speak to the, speak to the various people there as all, all this is playing out. And I'm sure all the other teams are absolutely loving it. Yes, no, no I would never miss an opportunity to revel in, in, other, in other misery. But let's, let's move on, guys, to the other, the other notable thing, really, about this race this weekend, um, which, uh, John, as you mentioned earlier, it's Lewis Hamilton against Valtteri Bottas. Uh, and obviously, the championship can be, can be sealed at this race, which, if Hamilton does it, would be three races before the end of the season, with the two races in Bahrain and then Abu Dhabi still to come. He can do it if he makes sure he's 78 points or more ahead of Bottas coming out of the weekend. He's currently 85 ahead. That's after the race because that's what will be that's what will be left remaining on the table in terms of the points available in Bahrain and Abu Dhabi. So, Luke, fairly simple. Do you expect the championship to be sealed this weekend? Yes. Yeah. It's very straightforward. Um, so, what would it take? It would take a Bottas win with a fastest lap, I think, to keep it going to another race and which I mean that's well within Valtteri Bottas's reach so by all means he could well do that but I just think yeah the form that Lewis Hamilton is in right now I really find it hard to look past him sewing things up here and he's just he's just in a, in a really good groove and I think that it will be it'll be the fourth year now I believe he's won it with three races to spare he always has quite a good knack even even in a shortened season it seems of getting things done quite early and yeah I just think that he's gonna I think he's just got everything in his favour right now I think he's in a in a really good spot obviously Bottas has got to fight back after the disappointment of Imola where he struggled with the damage to his car and that meant that he wasn't able to really have a, a, a fair crack at going for the win but I think that yeah this should be this should be where Hamilton is, is crowned a, a seven time world champion which is going to be a a real remarkable achievement and I think just continue the sort of the debate about the greatest full time and everything like that it just it just adds to the fact that he's statistically now going to become I think the greatest ever and yeah I, I'm just really I'm interested also to see that once it's sewn up how everything else moves whether he's like right title's done now I can talk about contracts in my future but I think that yeah I would be surprised if we go to Bahrain and there's still something to play for. Indeed, and, and while we're at it, Luke, seeing as you mentioned the greatest, you give me an opportunity to insert an unscripted plug for the Autosport Smooth. 70th anniversary special issue, which you can now order from autosport.com, which discusses the greatest. That is the topic. It's not, it's not, we're not saying anyone in particular is the greatest, although I believe Kevin Turner is doing a feature where he may do exactly that. Uh, but yes, we, we can, you know, we, that's what, that's the topic we examine in terms of Formula One, in terms of all, all other categories, We've got touring cars, rallying, 
sports cars. It's all there. Go buy it. It's going to be a wonderful thing. and I'm very much looking forward to uh, reading it. In fact, I've already ordered my copy, although it is going to be sent out free to all Autosport magazine subscribers. Um, but yeah, uh, John, it's interesting what Luke said there about the fact that Hamilton could potentially wrap up the title with three races to spare in a shortened season because this isn't the usual massive behemoth, unwieldy Formula One calendar. Because of the pandemic, it's been condensed and shortened a massively mad uh, run of races. And yet, he still potentially could seal it massively early. So what does that say about his performances in 2020? Oh, he's been better than ever this season. Um not really. What's, I think the difference has happened this season is that he didn't have much of a wobble at the start of the campaign. Often he comes into the air, uh, not necessarily on the back foot, but things don't gel to the extent um, that they do normally in the second half of the campaign. So it's probably a bit of a different mindset um, approach with the, the condensed season. Maybe just excels in the summer. Maybe when the sun comes out, he's much, much better. And, um, you know, we got out of spring and the season didn't start till July. So, um, but yeah, he's he's rolled it. Um, I still think that you know invariably when drivers have the first chance at winning the drivers championship, it doesn't always happen. Um, I don't know whether something just clicks in their in their mindset or the the talk and the build up to the weekend gets too much. But uh, I wouldn't be too surprised if it doesn't get wrapped up this weekend, just because um, these things sometimes happen and drivers can trip up or the pressure just feels slightly different. Yeah, that's that, that. That's an interesting point you raised there, John. I mean, also, and also, just just what I find really interesting about the season is going back to what you said about you know Hamilton traditionally has these slow starts. He still kind of did when you think about how the Austrian Grand Prix played out. It was just that the fact that the second race a week later he was straight back on it, nailed the wet qualifying session, and then his season sort of took off from there. As you say, the uh, the, 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 the you know the aspect of what's been notable about the starts the seasons that he's generally made, it, it just was very very short in terms of potentially not being uh, completely up up to speed, as it were. Uh, but look, just cu- coming back to you, it's interesting thinking about Valtteri Bottas because the the further we get away from that Imola race, and it's interesting, I was thinking about our drive, our, 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 our very fast and very safe drive back to Florence Airport to get us home on that Sunday night. Um, it, 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 the more I think about it, and, and because I was thinking about it on that drive, about what I was going to put in my race board, in case you thought, what on earth is he talking about in this, in this bit of the podcast, but there we go. Um, was just how good Bottas was that weekend. I think, you know, his pace in the first stint, everybody, everybody else was sort of suggesting, you know, oh, if Red Bull had known about, had known about the debris, they wouldn't have pitted. Uh, they wouldn't have pitted Verstappen and they would have just waited and they could have overtaken Bottas. But nevertheless, he was still extending his gap. He was still producing very, very, very good lap times to the point where I'm pretty sure there's a Mercedes quote floating around maybe from Andrew Shovelin saying, we weren't actually sure initially if, the, if what we were seeing from the data was correct because we'd sort of seen that there was a piece lodged there, but his times were still so good that, we were just like, right, okay, he's actually there. And then we, they later got it confirmed from the TV shots and, and pictures and stuff like that that it was. It was a good weekend for Bottas. Unfortunate, really unfortunate what happened with the debris. But he's got, he's, I mean, he has no choice now. He has to, he has to nail it in Istanbul. And potentially, as we've discussed in terms of teammate flashpoints, could this be the perfect track for that to happen? <laughs> that would be quite interesting, wouldn't it? So the, the one weekend where... Hamilton can sort of have his crown and glory if Bottas sort of finally gets mean, I guess. And it's something that I think we're all kind of interested in, in this dynamic, in the sort of Mercedes relationship between Hamilton and Bottas. And Bottas has kind of always been this sort of very, very obliging, very sort of accommodating wingman, which is a a term that he really hates being used. And obviously was used, I think, once as a slip of the tongue by Toto Wolff and only for that situation. But it's kind of become now, I guess, sort of used more, more fleetingly about him. And I think that, yeah, it's... 
but he's been really good this season. That's the thing. Like, this has probably been his best season in F1. And the gaps to Hamilton in qualifying through sort of the mid, mid part of the season were tiny. Like, he was always within a tenth or ahead by a tenth. And at Imola, again, like, he was in really, really good form, managed to grab that pole position, and then was strong in the first part of the race despite this damage. So he's not, like, he hasn't been poor this year at all. Like, he's, he's made some mistakes here and there. But for the most part, he's been very, very close to his teammate. And I think that knowing that he can delay the coronation, obviously it's not something that he'll be like out to do to spite his teammate or anything like that, but he'll want to just have some fight back and get another win up and just try and sort of keep things going as much as he can. And I think what I'd be quite interested to see if we get into a situation in the final part of the race uh, where we've got, say, Bottas leading Hamilton in second. And after a week where sort of things have, have swung on one vote here or there in, in the United States, whether the one bonus point for the fastest lap, whether Hamilton might think, well, I'm not going to go for the win. I'm going to back off, get my fast lap bonus point, wrap up the title. And uh, whether Bottas would, might have to react to that. So might see a bit of sort of cat and mouse gamesmanship between the two of them in the, in the closing stages, which uh, hypothetically could be very, very interesting. That's a very topical suggestion there, Luke. But of course, in Formula One, there can be no, whether they can, you can protest a result, I guess. Ah, what am I talking about? Yes, the the entire situation with Donald (laughs) Trump, the entire ridiculous and frankly outrageous situation with Donald Trump could come true. You could get those uh, ridiculous protests, but I doubt that will happen in Istanbul. Um, Yeah, and and it's also just worth pointing out that if there is a clash between Bottas and Hamilton uh, this weekend, I'm not saying I want that to happen. Of course, I do as a journalist. Let's face it, uh, but um, Bottas has to score. He, him retiring helps Hamilton. He like the, the, the only thing that that he can do is outscore Hamilton. However, it happens. So if he retires from the race, that's obviously disastrous as well. Um, but just before we move on to sort of the last couple of topics on uh, on this podcast, um, John, I wanted to ask for your memories of the two thousand and six Turkish Grand Prix weekend, taking you even further back in time because. That's another really sort of standout memory of Hamilton from this track. And it's interesting thinking about how much F1 and, and Liberty Media have sort of changed things because lots of people are going to see the the videos that are going to be put out on social media and at various points about Hamilton's, uh, he, was, he was racing in GP2 at the time, his recovery from spinning on lap two in the sprint race, charging back to second place, it goes down. It sort of, it, it, it really, really adds to the early parts of the Hamilton legend, as it were, that race. And, you know, it, you know, it following on from what he'd done at Silverstone in GP2 and sort of wowing everybody. But can you remember, how did that go down in the F1 paddock? How was it received uh, received on the day? Yeah, I think, think by this stage, people were kind of well alert. Even people who don't follow... Um, kind of the junior categories to the extent that we do so you know a lot of, a lot of drivers only come on the radar if they're doing we're doing exceptionally well in either f3000 or gp2 or wherever it came from so i think you know lewis's success at silverstone uh, had really pushed him onto the kind of the, the fleet street radar um as an example they were looking for you know someone who could be up there jensen barton had come into f1 in 2000 um you know, had, had pushed on and done all right, but hadn't delivered that that world championship at that point that um, Fleet Street had been used to with the, the kind of the Mansell years and the Hill years. Um, so they were looking for this, you know, new superhero to come in. So I think, you know, after the Silverstone success, um, he was being watched, and then any of these great great comebacks from the back always um, they improve the narratives, don't they? It's sometimes better to. Um, spin on lap one, go to the back and charge through and win than lead into turn one and pull 40 seconds clear and utterly dominate sometimes. So, um, yeah, I think it, by that stage, I think there were no doubts that Lewis was 
was ready for that step up to Formula One. Although I think even nobody could have predicted just you know how immediately he would he would get on the pace or what a remarkable 27, 2007 we would have. Indeed. Well, as I said, we're coming towards the end of this podcast. Um, let, 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 let's discuss perhaps uh, uh, other news stories that we should probably keep an eye on this weekend. Uh, Luke, as you mentioned, obviously, really sadly, devastatingly, uh, coronavirus is on the rise again. We are firmly in the second wave in Europe. Uh, and that is having an impact, uh, particularly, definitely, we know, one squad in terms of Williams. They've been forced to change things in terms of sort of the makeup of their team this weekend because of, sadly, uh, some positive cases. So what, what's been going on there? Yeah, so Williams confirmed a few days ago that they were going to be changing the makeup of the travelling team for Turkey. As you said, they had some positive cases that did come up. All of the teams obviously undergo the FIA's uh, testing regime, which is every five days that the three of us have all been involved in as well as sort of participating members of the of the race weekend. But those, and the figures always reported, always very minimal. It's, I think the latest round was eight cases or something like that for the, for the previous week. But any testing that teams do outside of that is not recorded. So therefore, we don't actually know for sure what the proper numbers are. And we've heard sort of reports of teams having some more cases than have been reported, particularly at Racing Point, for example. Uh, but Williams, I think, and to their credit, have been very transparent about it and put out a statement saying, look, we've had some cases. We're going to be changing up who is in our travelling team for the weekend obviously we know that uh, George Russell's trainer uh, had sort of some COVID symptoms before Imola ultimately that came to nothing but it's uh, it is it's just good to see a team sort of being very vigilant so yeah there will be some changes at Williams quite what the extent of it is in terms of who it is we don't know but we'll uh, obviously find that out in the coming days indeed and John in terms of the the wider interest in terms of the driver market expecting any any announcements to be made this weekend there was uh, uh, there were suggestions that uh, Gene Haas was seen on the grid at Imola maybe he'd uh, flown in flown over to Europe during the pandemic to, to sign a few contracts anything uh, that's obviously pure speculation uh, but anything you're expecting to happen this weekend well I think that the next step we're making is Haas to announce his two drivers um, I think everyone's uh, agreed that it's going to be Nikita Mazepin and Mick Schumacher but I don't think that I's have been dotted and the T's crossed just yet and it may may be that Ferrari um, decides that it wants to wait until after the Formula 2 um, championship's been done and dusted in Bahrain before making an announcement um, if they've already decided that this is the route they want to go to there's no particular need to rush out an announcement potentially you don't want it to affect you know Mick Schumacher's focus on winning that F2 championship if suddenly he's been thrown a lot of F1 questions or switching the focus there so better to keep his mind focused on Formula 2, get through the Bahrain weekend. He will obviously want to wrap up the, the championship there. Uh, and then what a, what better way to cap that championship than to then announce that he's um, stepping up to F1 next year. So I think that's the next step. Um, the other big question, of course, is Red Bull. Um, what's happening there? Alex Albon's under pressure to keep that seat. Um, Imola, you know, a bit of a mixed weekend, really. Qualifying wasn't a complete disaster, um, he was within reach, but potentially not as not as far up the grid as he needed to be. Um, but the race didn't really make an impact. wasn't the the rear gunner that Red Bull need. Uh, and obviously, that mistake at the safety car restart was, you know, pretty poor for his hopes of staying on. And you know, it's, it's another reason that Red Bull could think that we perhaps need someone a bit more experience in. But I'm not expecting anything imminent on that front. And I think Red Bull may well try to time that out till the end of the season just to see if Alex can can build up some momentum that's been lacking. 
Indeed, and it's just interesting going back to what you're saying about Ferrari and, and Mick Schumacher. That's that's basically the, the you know the the wait for the title to be wrapped up or, or see how things progress down the line was basically what Ferrari did with Charles Leclerc back in 2017 when he won the Formula Two Championship. I can remember when I was covering that series. I'd either go up to him in the paddock or I'd, I'd ring him up and I'd say, "Oh, do you mind if we have a quick chat?" And he was like, "As long as it's not about Formula One, if it's just about Formula Two, fine. Not about Formula One." I was like, "Okay, well, as I'm the F2 correspondent, I shall ask you about that championship then." But there we go. Right, guys, thank you very much for coming on the podcast this morning and thanks to everybody listening along. Now, just before we go, we'd like to remind you that the latest issue of Autosport magazine comes out on Thursday and will be available on the supermarket shelves and in newsagents as well as on the doormats of subscribers. There'll be a new issue of the magazine for you to pick up every Thursday, packed full of news, analysis and the usual stunning photography. And of course, if you want unlimited access to Autosport from the comfort of your home, visit autosport.com slash plus to find out how to subscribe to our digital package. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Autosport podcast. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Some folks don't stop till they find the truth. June's Journey is a roaring 20s murder mystery hidden object game. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android or iOS devices and on PC through Facebook games. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply